Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The show is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855am. And thank you very much to Sally from Out of the Pan for another really important and valuable um, show uh, and some really important points about the media um, exploiting and sensationalising people's work to um, drive their own traffic. It's a really disappointing thing that they do, and especially when they use it to victim blame people who have, um, have are victims of violence and, in this case, murder. So... Thank you very much, Sally, for another great show. And you can listen to Out of the Pan every Sunday uh, from 12pm to 1pm. And then stay tuned for Freedom of Species. So today we're going to be listening to a talk um, by Layla Kassam, who is a part of the Animal Think Tank Collective. The talk is labelled or called, titled, How Can We Build a Powerful Mass Movement for Animal Justice? Animal Think Tank is a new collective made up of grassroots pro-animal campaigners in the UK, which aims to provide the support needed to build a powerful anti-speciesist movement. Their mission is to support the building of a broad-based anti-speciesist movement that has the power and resilience to ensure individual animals have their rights to life, liberty and security of person, protected in in law and respected by society. Animal Think Tank currently consists of Mark Westcombe, Dan Kidby and Layla Kassam. This talk was delivered at VegFest Brighton in 2019 as part of a movement-building training stream run by Animal Think Tank. And it's taught, and as I mentioned, it was um, delivered by Layla Kassam. And Layla has been involved in social change for most of her career, Having worked in the international development sector since 2003, she has worked for NGOs, foundations, government ministries, and international research and development institutions. Layla has been practicing veganism since 2013 and is the co-founder of the Veterinary Vegan Network and Ethical Globe. Layla holds a Bachelor of Science in Economics and Politics and uh, from the University of Bristol and a... Um, Masters in Development, Developal, De- Developmental Management from the London School of Economics and Political Science and a PhD in Developmental 
uh, Development Economics from the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. Now, I just want to mention before I play the talk that there is a bit of background noise that was recorded in a, um, a very um, lively, lively session. So if you can persevere with that, the message that Layla is um, presenting is really valuable. And that's why we're presenting this, despite the quality of the audio. Uh, enjoy. Structural change. 
And all of these movements use protest and um, disruption and civil disobedience to build their power. Now we don't really learn much about the power of mass movements at school, at least I certainly didn't. And we don't really hear about mass movements on the media which are so focused on electoral politics. But as Howard Zinn said, the good things that have been done, the wars that have been stopped, the women's rights that have been won, the racism that has been partly extirpated in society. All of that was not done by government edict. It was all done by citizens' movements. And when a movement is strong enough, it doesn't matter who is in the White House. What really matters is what people do, and what people say, and what people demand. There is a whole field of study and literature on civil resistance and non-violent conflict, which studies how social movements can fight injustice when it seems that their opponents hold all the power. And despite the fact that I've spent my whole career in social change, working in the field of international development, I only really started to understand the power of mass movements about a year ago, when two people in this room, Dan and Mark, recommended that I read this fantastic book, This is an Uprising. And it is so inspiring, and I recommend that everybody reads it. And then in November last year, I had the opportunity to experience firsthand the power of mass civil disobedience when I volunteered with Extinction Rebellion, which is a climate direct action group based in the UK that came to prominence in November last year, and in the last five months has grown exponentially all over the world. And the reason that it's been able to grow so quickly is because, well, partly because it's drawing on the same research and strategies and concepts and principles from the field of civil resistance that I want to share with you today. So, the three big ideas I want to talk about are the power of people, the power of momentum, and the power of strategy. So first, the power of people. One of the key principles that underlies um, mass protest movements is their theory of where power lies in society. We have been conditioned to believe that power lies in the political system and in its leaders. We traditionally think that power flows from top to bottom and that social change comes from the actions of politicians and lobbyists and lawyers and donors working behind the scenes. But successful social movements worked precisely because ordinary people came together and changed public opinion and forced politicians to address issues they'd rather avoided. So this tells us that actually power lies for the people. And we give our power away through our consent and through our obedience and through our cooperation. Well then that also means we can take our power back by withdrawing our consent and our cooperation and our obedience. But most people don't actually feel like they have the power to change anything. And that is why uh, civil resistance campaigns are so important, because they actually give people the experience that they do have the power to change things if they can act together. So our theory of power directly impacts how we believe social change happens, our theory of change. If we believe that power lies with the so-called leaders at the top of society, then we will probably focus our efforts on pressuring those leaders to change. So we might do this from inside the system, or we might do it from outside the system. 
If we do it from inside the system, we might focus on lobbying or party politics, the inside game. Or if we do it from outside, we might build strong organisations like trade unions or NGOs to pressure um, leaders from outside the system, the outside game. Both of these games maintain or reform the status quo. But what if we believe the power lies with the people? Well, in that case, we would make strong social movements that will pressure society from outside and force social change. And unlike the inside game and the outside game, this is actually about changing the game. This is about disrupting and transforming the status quo. So this is actually the theory of change that underlies successful social movements. And this is the theory of change that I believe holds the key to success in the animal justice movement. But I should also say that all of these theories of change are valid and important. And Bill Moyer, a social movement theorist and civil rights activist, looked at a whole range of social movements and found that successful movements actually have individuals and organisations playing four different roles. And all of them are important, and all of them become important at different stages of the movement cycle. So if we're talking about the rebel, which that means the sort of the direct action activist or group who's trying to change the game, they often come to the fore at the movement's takeoff stage. And if we're thinking about the reformer, so maybe the NGOs who are trying to convert the winds of the rebels into actual laws and policies, they often come to the fore towards the end of the movement cycle. So many of us, myself included, um, like to think that our role and our way is the right way, but it turns out that social change requires all of them. So this theory about people power uh, being able to change society is actually supported by research uh, by Chenoweth and Stevens in their book, Why Civil Resistance Works. And they looked at over 300 national level campaigns and they found that no campaign failed once it had achieved the active and sustained participation of 3.5% of the population. That's about 2.4 million people in the UK. They also found that non-violent movements are twice as successful as violent movements. And that's for many reasons, but one of the main ones is because non-violent movements attract and mobilise a lot more people than violent movements, because violent movements scare people off. So to summarise uh, the power of people, um, Bill Moyer wrote, the central task of social movements is to win the hearts, minds and support of the majority of the populace, because it is the power, who, because it is the people who ultimately hold the power, they will either preserve the status quo or create change. Okay, so hopefully that will make sense. But how exactly are we meant to mobilise 2.4 million people in the UK for animal justice when there are about 600,000 vegans and a very small proportion of them seem to be doing direct action? What does social movement theory tell us, or the history of social justice movements, what does that tell us about how to actually build a movement? Well, one thing to say is that movements are built one campaign at a time. And there is this concept of momentum, which seems to be very important for the success of campaigns and ultimately for building movements. So the National Lunch Counter-Citizens in 1960 
um, in the civil rights movement is a classic example of a campaign that was able to build momentum using direct action, absorb that momentum, and build a mass movement and win their demand. So I'm just going to share that story with you to illustrate some of the concepts of momentum. So as you probably know, um, during this time, um, businesses and public institutions were segregated, black people were prevented from voting, um, and lynchings were a common occurrence. In 1959, a man called James Wilson, who had been studying Gandhi nonviolence in India, came to Nashville, Tennessee, and put on weekly trainings for divinity, local divinity students on nonviolence, and he did this over the course of four months. And he taught them the philosophy and strategy of nonviolence, and he also taught them how to embody nonviolence through role play, because that would mean that they could, they could maintain nonviolent discipline when they were out to protest and facing violence themselves. So they studied um, the situation in Nashville to come up with a campaign. And even though segregation was a big background issue at the time, they knew that they didn't have the power to you know, demand an end to segregation. They wanted something smaller, a smaller target that they could win. Um, and so they focused on desegregating the lunch counters in Nashville. And they hoped that if they could win that campaign, it would inspire people to take on bigger and bolder campaigns in the future. So they knew that this wasn't going to end segregation, it wasn't going to end racism. But they also thought that the large counties, segregation of the large counties was symbolic of the oppression that they faced. So they planned their campaign, and their main tactics were, were to go to the large counties, order food, sit down and eat the food, which wasn't allowed, and refused to leave for the rest of the day. But in the meantime, the four students from Greensboro, North Carolina, had had the same idea and had gone off and started their own lunch counter system. So this spurred on the Nashville students, and 12 days later, a group of them went to three different lunch counters, ordered food, sat down, and refused to leave. The, the shop owners didn't know what to do, so they ended up just shutting, down, sh shutting the shops for the day. And the students were you know, really happy, they celebrated, um, they felt empowered, but they also knew this was just the beginning, uh, and that they'd have to go back week after week until they won. So after three weeks, they inspired enough people to join them so that they could go to six lunch counters. And then they started getting beaten up and arrested, and pictures were started appearing in the papers. And the students would get arrested, they would refuse bail, and they would go on hunger strike, and then they would be let out and go straight out to protest again, and this continued. Their sacrifice, their commitment, their dedication inspired so many people, um, and people who had originally thought their disruptions you know, were too disruptive, they didn't support them, they came around to their way of thinking. And the movement exploded, um, and so many people wanted to join them, but they didn't necessarily want to face the violence of the lunch counters. But the students had already planned for this, and they had lots of tasks and roles for people to do. Um, protesting outside the police station, leafleting, fundraising. And then they also called for a boycott of the downtown area. And 98% of the black population participated in this boycott. So that turned this into a mass movement. And it's important to note that if they had started off the campaign calling for a boycott, it wouldn't have worked. 
it only worked because they had escalated their actions over time and strategically. So at the same time now, um, there were counter-protests and demonstrations, and they were incredibly racist, and people didn't want to be associated with it. And so again, it was pushing more people to the side of the activists. And then the attorney who was, uh, who was defending some of the students, his house got bombed. And luckily, he survived, but this created a, a huge amount of outrage, which the activists um, capitalised on. And they organised a mass march to City Hall to confront the mayor. And when, uh, when they got there, Diane Nash, one of the student leaders, asked the mayor in public what he thought of segregated lunch counters. And either because he was back into the corner or he could feel the winds of change, he said he thought that they should be desegregated. So this was a huge win, um, and the movement made this happen. And, you know, Nashville became the first city in the South to de desegregate all public uh, facilities. And this campaign inspired and catalyzed the civil rights movement and provided a model for future campaigns. And many of the sitting leaders ended up becoming well-known leaders of the civil rights movement. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 
The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair with displays, books, garden pots, giftware and activities for children, along with talks, demonstrations, workshops, refreshments and door prizes. The Australian Plants Expo, Saturday the 14th and Sunday the 15th of September, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Adults $5, concessions $4 and children free. Contact Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra via email on apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430 513 433 for more information. The Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to Freedom of Species on 855 AM, uh, 3CR Community Radio. And the song we just listened to was Power to the People by John Lennon. And you've been listening to a talk by Leila Kassam, um, who is part of the Animal Think Tank Collective. The talk is titled, How Can We Build a Powerful Mass Movement for Animal Justice? So we've heard the first half of that talk, and now we'll move on to part two. So there are so many interesting things in this example I could talk about, but I've not got much time. So I'm just going to put out a few concepts which explain how um, they were able, well, how you can build momentum through direct action and build a massive The first concept is this idea of escalation. Social movements need to push the public to take notice of their issue, and they need to force them to actually take a stance. And escalating nonviolent direct action does this by forcing people to pay attention, forcing people to take a stance, by actually asking them which side are you on. And here's a quote from Diane Nash about the choice that the Nashville campaign presented to the public. It was either kill us or desegregate, which is not really much of a point, but a choice, and that is the point, basically. Um, and there are so many ways to escalate. Um, Jean Sharp uh, documented 198 methods of nonviolent action, ranging from petitioning, voting, all the way to strikes and sit-ins, occupations, vigils, mock funerals. Okay, so the Nashville campaign was very disruptive. It breached the social norms of the day. And the majority of the black population at the start didn't agree with them didn't agree with them and would say things like, this makes our race look bad. Does this sound familiar to anybody? How many of you have heard vegans say about animal rights activists doing disruptive actions, this makes vegans look bad? I think I've said it myself. Um, and actually, well, this is a slide that shows that the majority of the public were against the freedom riders in 1961, a later disruptive campaign rights movement, and yet it managed to bring people around to its cause. So disruption is needed if you want to force the issue into the public. It's needed to dramatise the injustice. It mobilises people to action, and ultimately it shifts public opinion. And Martin Luther King um, summarises in response to criticism that he got during the Birmingham campaign, where disruption led to violence, and he said, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of the tension. We merely bring to the surface, or sorry, we merely bring to the surface the 
the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with. Okay, so the students made big personal sacrifices. They got beaten up, they went to jail, uh, they went on hunger strike. Sacrifice touches people's hearts. It mobilizes people and it moves them from being passive supporters to active, uh, taking an active stand on issues. Um, it, it, it shows seriousness and commitment to the cause. And sacrifice has been a big part of social movements throughout history. Um, during the Salt March of 1930 in the Indian independence movement, 60,000 people were arrested. Um, later, civil rights campaigns had the slogan, Jail No Bail. And Extinction Rebellion, part of its strategy is mass arrests. Okay, so I've talked a bit about nonviolence already, but I just want to point out that the protesters maintained nonviolent discipline throughout when they were getting beaten up, when they were getting arrested. And one of the things um, this did was highlight the difference between them and the violent people who were beating them up. And again, ask people to pick a side who do we want to be associated with. And the final concept is this idea of absorption. So when um, movements take off and lots of people get interested and want to take action, um, there needs to be some kind of system to, to absorb that energy. And the National Sitting uh, Activists already had a plan in place to give people things to do. Often we see that mass protest movements, they come and they rise seemingly out of nowhere, and then they disappear again just as quickly. If they don't have the structures in place to actually absorb the momentum that they create in their public actions. Um, and there's lots of ways to absorb momentum, but just to say that if it really helps if organisations are decentralised because if they're not decentralised, it's very difficult to grow exponentially. So, there's quite a few concepts, but really it can be summarised in this slide, um, the cycle of momentum. And a group that's using this strategy really well and successfully at the moment is Extinction Rebellion. So, they've escalated using non-violent direct action. They're doing mass civil disobedience. They are, you know, having mass arrests, and this has gone into the media. It's got public sympathy. A lot of people, a lot of people are joining, so they've got increased active popular support. And because it is a decentralised um, movement, uh, and also because they are doing mass trainings in non-violent direct action, so training 100, 100 people at a time, um, they are able to absorb the momentum, the momentum that they have created. Um, and at these trainings, actually. Um, you can, they actually help you to form affinity groups at the training, so that then you get the training and then you can go off with your group and do autonomous actions and start the cycle all over again. Okay, so then the third big idea, which is actually not really that original, I realise, is the power of strategy. If we want to win, basically, if we want to actually achieve our vision, we need a strategy and a pathway for getting there. It's not enough to do tactics really successfully if it's not serving uh, campaign demand or a wider strategy. And this is a pretty simple tool to actually help strategize. Um, so organizations can think, you know, they can plan from top to bottom, they can think about their brand strategic objective, um, and then they can think about the milestones or the medium term phases for getting there. 
and then they can think about what kinds of campaigns will help them achieve those milestones, and then at the bottom are the tactics that can serve those campaigns. So just um, to illustrate, I'm sure they didn't strategize like this in the civil rights movement, but just to illustrate um, this tool, in the civil rights movement, perhaps their grand strategic objective was to um, achieve equality for people of colour, which is still ongoing and has not been won. And maybe their milestones were to desegregate um, and then equal voting rights. And then the campaigns for desegregation would be the National Campaign, um, the Birmingham Campaign, the Mississippi Freedom Summer, and for equal voting rights, the Selma Campaign. And then at the bottom of the tactics, things like the sit-ins, marches, boycotts, and protests. The other thing about strategy, really, is about this idea of making clear demands. Um, and Martin Luther King, and during the Civil Rights Movement, there was a, a campaign in Albany to end all segregation. So the demand was any segregation. And it, it didn't achieve anything. And Martin Luther King put this down to the fact that actually the demand was too vague. And he said, the mistake I made there was to protest against segregation generally, rather than against a single and distinct facet of it. Our protest was so vague that we got nothing and the people were left very depressed and in despair. And I think this holds quite a lot of importance to the animal justice movement. Another example is Extinction Rebellion. There are, they are fighting against climate change and mass species extinction. Um, presumably their goal is complete system transformation, but they're not actually mobilizing people around that. They've got three very clear demands which are resonating with people and have managed to mobilize a heck of a lot of people. So, what does all of this have to do with the animal justice movement? How can we put these concepts into, you know, to help us build a successful movement for animal justice? I've distilled 10 lessons, um, but I just want to caveat this with the fact that these concepts and how to apply them are not easy. Um, and it's going to require quite a lot of deep thinking and collaboration and discussion amongst stakeholders in the movement. And that is actually part of the work that I'm on think tank, the collective that I'm part of, that's hosting this two days movement building three. That's part of the work that we've committed to do. Um, so it's just a disclaimer, these are quite general lessons, but hopefully they will um, provide some good support for all of us. So the first lesson is we need to mobilise the mainstream. If we need to mobilise 2.4 million people, and there's only 600,000 vegans, we're going to have to mobilise people who aren't vegan yet. And John actually mentioned this um, in the previous talk. Um, and the thing is that actually I think it's possible, I mean it sounds possibly a little bit counterintuitive um, or hypocritical to some people, but people do care about animals. Um, maybe not to the extent that we want, but they do care. And the Sentience Institute did a survey in the US that 47% of people want to abolish slaughterhouses. Even if that was totally overestimated or biased, even if we're talking about an eighth of that in the UK, that's a huge amount of people that can be mobilised. In the UK, 26% of people are against all forms of animal testing. 70% of people are against what they think that game bird shooting should be bad. So, yeah, there's a lot of people that we can attract and mobilise. Um, and I also want to say that having a broad-based movement that is inclusive um, and safe for 
marginalised groups is not only important from a strategic perspective, it's also important uh, from a justice perspective as well. Okay, so we know now that non-violent campaigns are twice as likely to be successful as violent campaigns. So regardless of what we think about non-violence from a sort of moral, philosophical perspective, from a strategic perspective, it seems that non-violent movements are a way to go and will optimise our chances for success in the animal justice movement. So, I've talked a lot about the role of the rebel, as Bill Moyer calls, calls direct action activists. Um, but there are three other roles, um, the reformer, the citizen, the change agent, um, that are also important. And I think we probably need to make peace with the fact that there are always going to be other people and other organisations doing things differently from us. And that's okay. The movement needs us all. Well, this is a controversial one. Um, embracing the crime disruption. Maybe not in this group, but it is controversial in the vegan movement. And not that long ago, I would have been in the camp of people going, oh my god, what are they doing? They make us look ridiculous. Um, but then I learned what I've just shared with you about the power of disruption. If we want to grow the movement exponentially, if we want to force the injustice of our use of animals um, out into the public consciousness and force people to actually take a stance on the issue, we need to disrupt. So I think it's time to stop being embarrassed by it and actually embrace the power of disruption. Okay. Um, so the next lesson is about sacrifice. Um, many social justice movements, activists have laid their bodies on, their, on the line for the greater good. And as we heard in the previous talk, both John, JJ and so many people have, have made huge personal sacrifices. Um, and as difficult as it is to think about, I think, you know, we actually also need to be thinking about the fact that we need to make some sacrifices and overcome the fear of arrest and jail because ultimately it's fear that keeps these systems of violence in place. Okay. One off protests don't seem to work very well. We need sustained campaigns. The national campaign won because it was going day in, day out until it won. The dominant form of activism right now in the movement is vegan advocacy. It's educating and asking people to go vegan one by one. And that's making change on an individual level and on a cultural level, but it's not going to build the power that we need to demand structural change. We need collective action to do that. These past social justice movements have shown us that. So to me this means we need to build a powerful anti-speciesist mass movement that can demand structural change. A movement that centres other animals and recognises them as the actors in their own liberation. So it's not one or the other, we need both because we need change on all levels of society. Um, yeah, we need a bold, inspirational vision of change that can actually inspire people and um, be strategic about it. Um, at the moment, people are focusing either on the big demand of go vegan or on individual tactics like doing vigils or um, you know, doing cubes of truth. Um, we need to be a bit more strategic if we're going to win. And related to that is having clear and winnable campaign demands. Um, I can't remember what I was going to say about that, but I think it's quite um, 
at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. Something about it. Please do something about it. You say I'm different, so you treat me lesser than. But you are so wrong about me. Yes, you are so wrong about me. Because I'm like you. Still life inside my body Let me be free Freedom from your tyranny It's all I've ever wanted It's all 
I've ever wanted. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 
3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976, and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape, and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch, and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers, and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. And you've been listening to Freedom of Species on 855 AM 3CR Community Radio. Uh, and this song that you just heard was a song by Ernesto Melkor called Liberation. And you can find that song on YouTube if you want to listen to it again. It's got some powerful messages for sure. And you have listened to a um, talk by Layla Kassam at, as part of the Animal Think Tank Collective um, two-day workshop on building a um, movement for animals. And the talk was called How Can We Build a Powerful Mass Movement for Animal Justice? And if you'd like to check out more about um, what the Animal Think Tank Collective are doing, search them on Facebook and see what they're up to. I believe they're in the UK Um, So if you're in the UK, definitely check them out. They sound like they're a great group and they sound like they're doing some really good work. Um, So they might be worthwhile getting into and checking out. All right. So I really, so the the points that um, Layla was making were around um, us being strategic and thinking about how we can move the for, move the animal movement forward and build to a, um, a size that can gain mobilization and, and movement um, and to to make serious change drawing upon literature on social change in the past um, to identify ways that we can we can act as a movement um, to gain long-lasting change for animals and some really valuable points um, pointed out by Layla um, and worth thinking about in your local community. So if you are organising a um, around animal, animal rights, animal activism and animal liberation in your local community, you might want to have um, a sit down and check out some of the re- resources that Animal Think Tank uh, Collective have or even listen to Layla's, um, podca- Layla's talk um, together and get some ideas from that. There's certainly lots that we need to be doing for animals to ensure that we can create a better world for them and for ourselves. And just to wrap up, I don't have much more to, to say this week. Um, I just wanted to point out that the the animal movement is a global movement and it's it's good to know that we're not just we're not alone in this thing, that there's lots of people out there who care about animals and who are working for animals. And so I'm just looking on the news and I see that there is um, a protest in Cologne, uh, Germany, that is, you know, all the way around the other side of the world from here in Melbourne, Australia. And there's around a 1,000 animal rights activists who are marching six six kilometres in Cologne um, to bring awareness to the... um, animal rights issues and to animals and for animal liberation. So it's good to know that there's a global community that are working on 
animal rights and that it's something that is gaining movement um, and gaining traction. But as a community, we need to be strategic about continuing this um, continuing this going on and um, putting, our, putting our energies into the most effective forms of activism that will have the greatest outcomes for animals. And that's about it for me. So if you are... Um, if you're an animal rights activist out there, uh, make sure you get 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 out there and um, speak to others and and build this movement and work for animal animals and animal liberation. Definitely stay tuned for in psychedelia coming up next. Um, they're going to have another great show on all things um, drug related and and um, advocacy around responsible use and or responsible use in society of drugs and how we think about drugs in society and um, ending, ending the um, negative, ne- negative connotations and negative way that law and society thinks about drugs and drug use. So lots of good stuff around drug reform in, in psychedelia. Something, another issue that's certainly gaining traction in recent years and hopefully we'll see massive movement on that in, um, in the coming years as well. Uh, just to let you know, Freedom of Species is part of iRaw, a podcast. It's a it's a platform podcast for animals. The podcasting network is dedicated to animal advocacy, scholarship, ideas, social justice, activism, environmentalism, and making the world a better place for all animals. Our show runs every um, Sunday from one to two p.m. And the podcast will now also be found not only on our website and 3CR's website, but you'll be able to find us through the irawpod.com website as well. And you'll, and you'll find lots of other great um, animal podcasts on irawpod.com. So check it out if you are interested in um, finding more podcasts around animals. Tune into 855am in Melbourne, and we're streamed live via the 3CR website, um, every weekend and all previous podcasts are available on the freedom of species podcast website it's www.freedomspecies.org as well as on itunes and if you've got any feedback for the show please feel free to let us know at info at freedomofspecies.org or via facebook or twitter at fos radio and make sure you stay tuned for in psychedelia Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions. And look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.